let's 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 go ahead and, and uh, uh, begin with a word of prayer. Um, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, oh, Almighty God, you know we live in the midst of of so of so many dangers that in our frailty we cannot stand upright. Grant strength and protection to support us to support us in all um, grant strength and protection to support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, so, this sec, uh, session 14, Adoption as Sons, uh, we're going to get into some pretty good stuff. The It's going to repeat itself a little bit the more we go on, so, you know, and that's some redundancy is built in so that the point is made strongly uh, about the Heavenly Father having chosen and saved both Jews and Gentiles by grace through faith, you know, so that 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 main point rings throughout all this, chapters 9 through 11. I mean, it's a lot of ground to cover, but there's a main theme that goes throughout, uh, which we'll be talking about. So, how about let's have somebody start us with the first uh, first couple paragraphs there uh, up to the first uh, the first question. Who wants to read? I'll start us off. Go ahead. Rebellion formed the attitude of the sons of Abraham spread throughout the Roman Empire. Their relationship with the Romans continually continually worsened throughout the first century. For example, in AD 19 and again in 50 or 51. The emperors Tiberius and Claudius expelled Jews from Rome. In AD 35, Emperor Tiberius humiliated Roman Jews by for forcing them to eat pork. When a Jewish delegation from Alexandria visited Rome to plead for relief from persecution, Emperor Caligula taunted them because they would not worship him as a god. In AD 66, the Jews of Jerusalem revolted. By AD 70, the Roman general Titus and crush them and destroy the temple. In view of these tensions, Paul placed special emphasis on the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. As noted in the outline of Romans, a very major shift occurs after Romans 8. Paul discusses the position of the Jews in God's plan and stresses the importance of continuing a mission to them. Perhaps some people had interpreted Paul's emphasis on the Gentile mission as a license to close the door to future outreach to Jews. <clears throat> Many Jews were now rejecting Christ. Jewish relations with Gentiles grew more tense, but Paul did not lose hope for his ancestral people, nor did he halt his missionary practice to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Earlier, we noted that Paul made patterns of comparison between figures or events in the Old Testament and what God was doing in the New Testament. Paul argues in these chapters 
that just as God adopted Abraham and his descendants under the Old Testament, he now adopts the Gentiles through Christ. Okay, so uh, reflect on the joys and heartaches of adopting a child. Compare these thoughts with Paul's description of Old Testament, of, 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 excuse me, compare these thoughts with Paul's description of Old Testament Israel uh, in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. So, first of all, what are some joys and heartaches of adopting a child? Who's adopted a kid so far? To, you know, like, I've never really adopted yeah. anybody. What would you imagine that being like, though? Like, what kind of what kind of joys and heartaches might you expect in I'll adopting a child? I'll give you something that I thought when I thought of like uh, a heartache. Uh-huh. It's kind of like you're adopting them, and you know the struggles that they're going to go through, mm-hmm. but. You're adopting them because you want them to succeed mm-hmm. and be loved and everything like that. But kind of knowing what they're going to suffer through is kind of... And knowing that you're going to have to be a part of that also. Yeah, so what kind of things might an adopted child suffer through? Feeling of rejection by parents? Or... Right. Yeah, why, why didn't my mom want me, my dad, whatever. Why, why didn't my parents want me? Uh, I'm, I mean, even though where they wind up, you know, in a loving adopted home is a better place than being with a mom or a dad that's like on drugs or abusive or something like that. Still though, there's that heartache of saying, I, you know, of saying I want to be with my real, my real mom and dad. Not quote unquote, but it's just like, that's the thought because those are their parents, and there's heartache tied to that sense of rejection on some level, right? Uh, but so that's that's a heartache. Is is there joy in adoption? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of joys come from adoption? The joy of having a child. Yeah, for a, a family that can't have children, has not been giving the has not been given the blessing of children. Having a child to care for is a a blessing, um, and, and that's something that that I was I was really grateful for this when when I when we when me and Amelia went through premarital instruction with our with the pastor that married us. He said, and and he he was very direct about this, and I appreciated his directness. And he said, you know, you're not going to find out whether or not you're going to have children until after you get married, right? And if you are given the blessing of children, that's a good thing, but also know that God might not give you that blessing and and if you are barren, then that then you can he said there's no bones about it. It's it's uh it's it's a curse in a lot of ways because you have to bear the burden of not being able to have children if you want them. He said, but if you are given that cross to bear, you should seek to be parents in some way. You should maybe adopt. If not adopt, then 
be involved with children at church, be a father or a mom to kids who need that kind of person in their life, even if they have a mom or dad, you know. So so it's basically just like, you know, um, yeah, I was really appreciative of just, say, of, of just a pastor being really frank and honest with us and saying, you may not be given that blessing, but you should still seek to be parents because there are kids who need to be adopted. And, um, and you should really consider that if that's the case. And there are those even who have their own children and yet they want to adopt more children. And that's a blessing because then those children you adopt have brothers and sisters, right? But there's also the heartache because there could be the division between the real kids yeah. and the adopted kids, right? Uh, whether it's spoken or unspoken. So there's there's a lot of hardship that comes from adoption along with the joys that can come from it, right? So any other things that y'all are thinking about in that realm before we ask the next part of the question? Any other joys or heartaches that come from adopting children? Well, when you have your own children, you can look back on your family and see what's happened in other generations that have been passed down. When you adopt a child, you never know what their background is. That's right. Yeah, you don't you don't know their family history, their possible health issues that come from the family that they come from, um, mental health issues. Absolutely. Yeah. So you don't. So you take kind of a risk, and you know you you. It's, it's kind of treading on some unknown ground. So there's, there's some possible heartaches there for sure. Um, yeah. Um, absolutely. I think anymore in this country, when you turn like 21 or something, they'll open the books for you to find out who your real parents are. Yeah. I don't know. It, I don't I, know if that's a good idea or not. Yeah. I mean, it, it, some, some parents can si sign something that says that, you know, they just never want to be contacted or they promise never to get in touch or whatever. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know what all the rules or the laws are, but there might be something like that. If someone wants to know who their birth parents are and they're adopted, they probably can have a way to find out for sure. Um, but like you said, that may not be a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Depends. Depends. Another situation, if you adopt from a foreign country, I think the chances of something going wrong are much greater, much greater. Yeah. And I know of a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, something going wrong, yeah. like... Uh, uh, Turning uh, mental issues. Mental issues, yeah, health issues, things like that, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really sad, because like most of the kids that get adopted, they're the most desirable, quote-unquote, kids that would be adopted are like babies because then, you know, you kind of have a fresh start with a baby. Kids that are 12, 13, you know, not, not quite 18 and still in the foster care system, those are harder cases because they've been probably passed around a couple times in the foster care system and not a lot of people want to bring that into their home. So it's very sad. A lot of kids kind of drifting about in these systems and they really need a good home. But when it comes, and so there, well, we'll get to it. What are, what are these thoughts of adoption, these joys and hardships in comparison with Paul's description of uh, the Old Testament 
Israel in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. What is this? So Romans 9, 1 through 5, um, St. Paul writes, uh, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren and my countrymen according to the flesh, who... Who, um, who are are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So, what does that have to do with? the joys and heartaches of adopting a child, what Paul says there. What do you think? I guess uh, God experienced those things by adopting uh, Israel as the ones to have the promises and the law and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what, <laughs> I mean... It says but he that, did it to a stubborn, a stubborn people. Is that what? Yeah, yeah. It's well, referred it's, to like, yeah. You kind of know they're not going to keep it. Be yeah, able to keep it. It's really kind of funny because he's basically saying that even the Israelites were adopted. They weren't just naturally born into the family of God, which is that, which is what they thought they. That's how they were acting, right? <laughs> that's how they were acting. That well, I'm a son of Abraham. Of course, I'm chosen, right? And, and what Paul is saying here is that, no, even you were adopted, right? God chose this certain people to live according to the promise. And that's what really matters is the promise and faith in the promise, right? And so these children of Israel were adopted in. And yet, what did they do like an adopted child might do like what we talked about? They might start to resist and, resist and pine for the old ways, right? They may pine to be children of wrath again, which is what the history of Israel is full of, right? I mean, they chase after false gods. They worship Baal and uh, with their Asherah poles and all these things like that. They set, Some of the kings even sacrificed their firstborn to Moloch, you know? It's just... They, they kill the prophets. They killed the prophets. <laughs> I mean, they do all kinds of wicked things like rebellious children, right? And even now, what Paul is saying, they reject not only the prophets, not only God's word as it really should be received, but they reject the Son of God, right? They reject Christ. And Paul is, I think... Uh, very admirably compassionate here for his own people and saying, would that I were cursed for their sake. If I could be basically damned so that they would all be saved. I mean, if that's not the mind of Christ, I don't know what is, right? That's compassion uh, for his people. And it's like, it's basically like us saying, would that we would be condemned so that all of America or all of Texas maybe, right? All of our people would be saved. Yeah, uh, it's it's one of those things that um, 
Paul is passionately expressing his frustration over his, his people, his people according to the flesh, mm-hmm. that they have, all the promises have been given to them, but they're so stubborn and resisting of... Now, you really don't yeah. have an excuse. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they have no excuse. Yeah, they especially don't because they're hearers of the law. Like, they have it. They have the promise, and yet they still don't get it, right? So he's he's expressing these these uh, these um, joys and sorrows, uh, but mostly sorrows and heartache over his brethren in the flesh, saying that you know that I I wish they got, I wish they believed, right? Any any comments on that before we move on? What are the main reasons why they were rejecting Christ? Oh man, um, why does why why does anybody reject Christ? You know, I mean, that's that's the the hardness of the heart. The original sin. They're just so I don't know. Well, well, to maybe maybe play on the analogy a bit more of adoption, right? They believe. I, I mean, they believe that they are children of the promise according to the flesh. And then all of a sudden, one day, they're told, oh, by the way, <laughs> the, entire, the entirety of your faith as you've lived it out is not really right. And not only you, but now these Gentiles who all your life you've heard are unclean and you stay away from, they're children of the promise now. And you're not if you reject Christ. You know, So that may be some sort of stubbornness and saying, you know, who are you to tell me? That my entire life of faith is a lie, right? That, I mean, that's one possibility. I mean, but really it just goes, it just, in general, it is the sinful nature rebelling against God's word and saying, well, you know, I have better ideas than what you have to say, God. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Sean? Oh, no, you pretty much did Oh, <laughs> nice. The yeah. Jews believe in Christ. They just think he hasn't come yet. That's right. Yeah, they believe in a Messiah. Um, they just don't think it's Jesus, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. They, be- they believe the Messiah is still yet to come. Yeah, yeah. So, but this still, I mean, how sad is that? You're waiting on a guy who's already come and gone, and he's, you know. But I mean, as much as yeah. the Old Testament points to Jesus, and yeah. he fulfills all of those things. That's right. What are they really looking forward to? Like, what does Christ look like for them? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. It, I think it depends. I, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but from what I understand, I think it just, uh, the specifics depend on whatever rabbinical tradition you're a part of. Because uh, the Orthodox Jews, like, <laughs> they would be the ones still looking for the Messiah. Uh, no, they're all looking for him. Uh, but the thing is, is that it depends on who you're talking about. There's the Reformed Jews who are very liberal. I mean, they accept homosexuality and female rabbis and things like that. I mean, you have the Reformed Jews, you have the Orthodox Jews, who's like Ben Shapiro, you know, um, who adheres to the Torah as much as he thinks he does. And But he he's not so far gone as the, the ultra... The ultra, um, the ultra orthodox Jews, like you find in like 
parts of um, Brooklyn or something like that where they don't speak English. They only speak Yiddish. And they teach their kids not to speak anything but Yiddish. And you find these kids who like leave these communities and they never learn to speak English till they're like 25. Right? Because they keep them so much into their... Yeah, they stay in that closed community so much. And so it depends on even... Those are just the three I know of. Uh, I think though I've seen I've seen this one thing where there are there are missionaries in uh, in Israel, Christians in Israel trying to and and who were who are ethnically Jewish reaching out to the Jewish people, trying to evangelize to them of Christ, and they bring up passages like uh, from Isaiah and the suffering servant. Um, and just talking about what the Messiah will do, which is, they say, and I don't know, it's just on a video I saw one time, so I need to look into it more, but the, they'll, they'll, they'll read this passage from Isaiah of the suffering servant, and that's, you know, the servant of God, and they'll read this to them in Hebrew, right, to these Jews who are not Christians, and they'll, and they'll just read it to them and say, who does that sound like to you? And they'll all say, Jesus. That sounds like Jesus. But that's not a part of, but like in whatever tradition they're in, they'll strike that out. They won't read that. It's like kind of a stricken out part of, of Isaiah that they won't emphasize because it sounds too much like Jesus. Is and it Isaiah 53? I think so. Um, I thought I heard something uh, on a podcast that I'm talking about that specifically. Um, let me just check oh, real quick. Go back to this passage and talk to the Jews about Isaiah 53. Um, or Isaiah. Yes, yeah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Right, yeah. So that's, that's, that's Isaiah 53. Of the suffering servant, and when they read that to him, they say that they're just like, "Who does that sound like?" And the Jews will say, like the unbelieving Jews will say, "Sounds like Jesus." And they'll say, "Okay, what's to keep you from believing that Jesus is that one?" And they said, "Well, if I believe that, then my family would ostracize me, and I wouldn't be able to be in my family anymore." Excommunicated. So basically, they they stay out of fear for family, which Jesus himself has said. I came not to bring peace, but a sword, and, you know, father will be against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and son versus, you know, so it's like all the, you know, families will be split over Christ himself. So, it's really sad. It's really sad. Those are just a couple of reasons I can think of as to why someone might not, some, you know, Jews might not want to believe in Jesus or admit that. Right? Their priorities are elsewhere. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments on that? Yeah. Well, taking the written word and redacting pieces of it is uh, pretty common in Deku. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to fit, to fit your narrative and to fit your comfort level, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, uh, how about that next question? Um, in contrast to the New Testament, the Old Testament does not often refer to God as, quote-unquote, Father. When it does, the passages are filled with passion. In Deuteronomy, Moses sings a prophetic song about God's fatherhood. 
read Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 through 12, and then verses 16 through 21. Let's, let's, let's do that first. So put a, put a marker in Romans 9, and 9 through 11. And let's turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. Uh, Deuteronomy 32. Uh, who wants to read verses 10 through 12 and 16 through 21? I'll read 10 through 12. Okay. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. And then verses uh, 16 through 21. Who wants to read that? They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. Their abominations they provoked him. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful, and have forgotten the God who fathered you. When the Lord saw it, he spurned them, because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by foolish by a foolish nation. Right. So, uh, how are these verses fulfilled by the tensions between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day? Well, the Gentiles are the new arrivals. Right, they're the foolish nation, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're, they're exactly what verse 21 talks about, right? I, I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. And that's, that's what the Gentiles were known as. Um, the, Gen, the Gentiles uh, in the Greek are known as the ethnos, which are the nations, that is that that Israel was always supposed to be seen as the people, the nation, the tribe, and God says right here that uh, that um, and and uh, he said he says right here I will I will open it up to others right because you have provoked me with jealousy I will make you jealous right yeah any other thoughts on that. I mean, was it was it was it light what the Israelites did, <laughs> what the people of God did in provoking God? Is he just kind of is he unjustified in his wrath, or is he unjustified in his uh, in his making them jealous? He is justified. Absolutely. I mean, it says what they sacrificed to demons and not to God. Uh, 
And I shared this with, with the class this morning. And I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this great courses on like the origins of Western civilization. And there's just one, it was like a one, one of the lectures was on the Hebrews and the guy, such an academic, so annoying. He's trying to like, it's so, I'm sorry. It's just so annoying to me. Like, you know, I, I get it. You're in a special field and everything like that, but he's doing all this stuff where he's just saying like, Oh, the Hebrews were like the, were like the Egyptians at one point in time. At least you can think that where they didn't have monotheism. It was henotheism. They believed in other gods, but they only worshiped the one drop, like one God. And it's like, I said, I was thinking to myself, how do you get that? And he said, he said in his lecture, he's like, because this is all I like, this is all, this is all on audible. And so I'm just listening to this, like, where do you get this? And he says, like, you know, well, in Genesis, there's like the plural, like, you know, we, we, like, we do this and we do that. And we would see that as the Trinity, right? And he's reading this and saying, well, it's like, we, there's like a plurality of gods. People can see that. And then, and then there's no mention of the one true God until Isaiah. And I was just like, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Deuteronomy makes it so clear. And that's before before Isaiah, but also, I mean, uh, when you look at, when you look at Genesis itself, Elohim, God made these things, right? So it's just like, these academics will look at this stuff and be like, oh, isn't that very interesting? No, it's not interesting. Stop it. It's so annoying. (laughs) It's really actually really annoying that you would try and make it seem like, oh, it's adapted over time for so many, no, stop. Just stop. It's always been the truth. I've heard God's word has always been what it is. And you just need to find reasons to make it not what it says that it is. All right. <sighs> just get that pet peeve out of there. I mean, fine. You want to like, it's, it's, it's good to listen to alternate opinions, but man, it gets annoying after a while. Um, so anyways, that's my little uh, beef I have with this one guy. Uh, he teaches at Notre Dame. What do you want? So... Uh, uh, <laughs> I, but so, but I think that's very interesting. That sacrifice to demons, right? False gods are demonic. I mean, anything that's not the one true God is a lie of Satan. You know, that brings world religions into a different light, doesn't it? Uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, right? Uh, even 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 Judaism. They believe in a false god, like modern day Judaism is a false religion because they're believing in the God who they believe, you know, is, is it's, it's, it's really actually really sad when, when, when people say Judeo-Christian, I think to myself, that's an oxymoron that they don't have anything in common fundamentally because there is only the Christian God, right? There is only the Christian God as he has been revealed in the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have the full revelation now. So now to say Judeo-Christian, just it doesn't make any sense because they're still in the dark, right? Yeah, we, we have the same scriptures in the Old Testament that they do, but they are in the dark about what they're actually saying, right? So there's only the Christian God. That's it. Right. And so anytime somebody that's that's another pet peeve of mine, anybody says Judeo-Christian values. I'm just like, you mean Christian values, man, Christian values, because it's always the Christian God. And we have the full revelation now in Christ. 
So we pray for our Jewish friends that hopefully they would, you know, those those who have those who do not believe in Christ, that they would believe in Christ. But we don't we don't mince and mingle uh, the beliefs as much because it's just like, well, we have the full revelation now. We're not going to mess with the old stuff as if it's not fulfilled in Christ. Right? I have a yeah. buddy that I used to like play guitar with back in high school, uh-huh. and uh, he got real wild and crazy. But he is involved in a church. I guess it's just like a house church right now. Mm-hmm. But they're that's what they do. They mix mm-hmm. Christianity and still adhere to the old laws and feasts and practices and try to like mix the two together. Yeah, so they're Judaizers basically at some level, right? Uh, which is what Paul talks about in Galatians. You know, he's dealing with people like that. Uh, but, it's really kind of interesting. Um, I, mean, I don't know all the ins and outs sure. of their, uh, I guess, denomination or whatever. Sure, yeah, their, their stripe of faith. Um, I mean, I, un, unless I knew exactly what they were doing, I wouldn't be able to say whether or not it's good or bad of what they're doing. I, I mean, if, some, if there are Christians who still want to celebrate Passover, fine. That's fine. That's, that's, that's fine with me. I mean, because St. Paul says, do not do not judge others based on the feasts and the moons and things like that. If they want to keep certain feasts, um, you know, he was dealing with people who were still holding Passover, right? Or uh, um, who were still celebrating these feasts as they had received them in their heritage. Fine. I just think it's kind of funny that now that those things have fallen out of practice amongst the Christians that there are Christians who would want to go back to those things as if we don't have things that are greater, right? So it's just, it just kind of makes me question. It's like, well, what are we trying to re, what are we trying to reclaim that we don't already have in what we've received as Christians? Uh, It's just, it sounds to me like they're, they're trying, whenever I hear stuff like that, some alarms go off in my head a little bit to kind of be wary and kind of be a little suspicious to say like, well, what's the point? What's the point of trying to regain the Passover meal? What's the point of trying to practice Yom Kippur? Isn't, isn't every Sunday a day of atonement, right? Isn't every Sunday a Passover when we celebrate that well, so Christ is our Passover? Well, that just because maybe it was a part of their heritage and they're just trying to like... I understand, remember. yeah heritage instead of worshiping yeah and that's but i mean it's still it still brings into some question of like you know i guess what's the point and it's not something that i would recommend like lutheran churches like let's revisit the jewish roots or whatever there there is a, a movement called the hebrew roots movement uh so i can speak about that a little bit they are typically who paul is railing against in Galatians. They are those who say you must keep the law, right? So people are saying that you must keep it's it's Jesus plus the law, and that's something that needs to be said. No, no, no. That's not how this works, right? Uh, it's not Jesus plus the law that saves. It's just Jesus, right? Uh, so short of that, if anybody, if you know, if if they're doing something different I, I don't know it just it I just all depends observe passover and like he takes everything and gets it out of his house and 
all of that. Again, stuff, for what purpose, right? Yeah. Is it? I don't know. Yeah, what I don't his know. Purposes, right? I right. don't know, and that's probably the question to ask. Like, what's the motivation? Are you doing this because you think that? The, are you doing By it doing because this it's, it's going to give you more graces, good graces with right. God? Or? Is it? Is it going to make your relationship with God better? Like he's going to say, "Oh, look, he's doing everything he's supposed to do, and I'm going to like him more." Or is it just because you see it as a good practice? I, yeah, it just depends. It depends. But then again, I would just think like, well, we as Christians haven't celebrated Passover except in the form of Easter, you know, every year. Uh, so it's like, I just wonder why. You know, I just wonder what's the point. Yeah. Um, it, it, just, it just depends. So we can get better riffs on his guitar. What's that? Maybe, so he can get better riffs on his guitar. Yeah, maybe God will bless him in that way. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's funny. That's good. All right, well, let's keep moving on here because um, we're going to touch on this stuff as we go along too. So note the end of uh, chapter uh, nine, verse five. What specific truth about Jesus had the Jewish people not understood? The so yes, yeah. had come. Yeah, who is Jesus? Who is God over all. Yeah, he is God over all. He is the one true God, right? That's what they didn't understand. If, if, if they understood it, like some of those Jews I talked about who heard the passage from Isaiah, and it's like, they understand, but they don't believe it, right? I think that's the big thing, is that they don't have faith that Jesus is uh, God over all, Right? Um, yeah, so let's move on to talking about all, uh, all of quote unquote, um, man, and the verbs are getting me all, all Israel, right? Um, Romans nine through 11 are key chapters that are frequently cited as the biblical foundation for dispensationalism. The conviction that God will grant a special time of repentance to his old covenant people, the Jews, whereby they will be saved apart from faith in Christ because they are God's special people. The problem arises from understanding Romans eleven twenty six, 26, that um, says that all Israel will be saved as a reference to a Jewish religious, uh, a Jewish religious and or political entity such as the modern nation of Israel. This interpretation grows from a false understanding of Old Testament prophecy that looks for a literal fulfillment of prophecies concerning the restoration of Israel. Key texts within these chapters discuss uh, the identity of the Israel about which Paul is talking. So uh, we're going to read the following passages and identify who, uh, who the Israel is in each text. So Romans 9, 6 through 8. Who wants to read Romans 9, 6 through 8? And then we'll talk about it. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Mm -hmm. So who is the Israel discussed here? 
anybody who believes in the promise that was given through Jacob? Yes. Or Isaac? Right. Who is the first who is the first um Israel that's discussed in that passage? Abraham. What's that? Abraham? Uh, well, the seed of Abraham. Yeah, the, the physical descendants. Yeah, the children, the, the actual flesh and blood children. That's the first. Uh, the first Israel refers to the physical descendants of Isaac, right? And, you know, from Isaac, before Isaac was Abraham, right? So what about the second? And that's the children of the promise. Um, those who believed uh, in, in that promise, Right, that that Abraham is the father of faith, and if you believe, of course, if you believe the promises he did, he is your father. Right, that's what Paul's getting at. Um, any questions on that before we go on to the next passage? Pretty straightforward, right? Mm -hmm. How about Romans ten eight through twelve? Who wants to read ten eight through twelve? But what saith that? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou, they, thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Mm -hmm. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Mm. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. All right. So who's, who is the Israel discussed there? All who believe and call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, is is there a distinction? No. No. Both Jew and Gentile, right? Both Jews and Gentiles who believe uh, in the promise. Okay? Um, how, about, how about Romans 11, 25-36? Who wants to read that for us? And we'll discuss it. Romans 11, verse 25-36. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as the election is concerned, they are, are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All right. So who is the, um, the Israel that's discussed here? The old timers and the newcomers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, what we would say is the church. The church. Yeah. The church. Uh, so, um, yeah, the first Israel refers, again, to the physical descendants of the Old Testament nation. And all of Israel refers to all Jewish and Gentile believers. That's the church, all who believe. Um, uh, and also, so chapter 11, verse 25 to 36, like chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, affirms that Israel refers to the church since it mentions that Gentiles are part of uh, this, this, um, this Israel. Uh, the partial hardening is the rejection of Jesus by many Jews. The reason Paul is addressing this topic is because he does not want the, the mission outreach to the Jews to cease as the church moves on to the Gentiles, right? Uh, Paul is still hopeful that more Jews will come to faith in the future and be part of um, the new Israel, right? The church um, that, that will be saved. Therefore, these verses stress the importance of ongoing outreach to Jews with the hope of more coming to faith in Christ and becoming part of the true Israel. Yeah? Any thoughts or questions on that? No? Okay. Um, so as you can see from your study, as we just said, chapter 9, verses 6 through 8 states that Israel is made up of all believers, whether Jew or Gentile. Chapter 10, verse 8 through 11 affirms that salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 11 Verses 25 to 36 affirms that Israel is the church. The reason Paul is addressing this topic is because he does not want the mission to the Jews to cease. As a, uh, yeah, as I just said, that's basically me reiterating that uh, as it moves on to the Gentile mission. A second issue in this part of Romans is the doctrine of election or predestination. So let's carefully read Paul's arguments about what God actually does and what God could do. Okay? Like Paul, let's contemplate this topic with reverence, remembering that you are exploring a, 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 a mystery. Okay? So he asks in chapter 9, verse, four, verse 14a, right, the first part of that verse, is God unjust with his people? What's the answer? By no means. Yeah, certainly not. By no means. Uh, God is just, right? Uh, and he declares his people justified through Christ, right? And we see that there's a reference there to chapter 3, uh, verses 25 through 26, that says, um, whom God, you know, Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay? 
So God is not unjust, but he is the justifier through Christ. Now, questions on that? Thoughts on that before we go on to the next question? So we're laying the groundwork of God's primary work, right? His primary work is justification. Uh, and what we're laying the groundwork for is what we touched on, I think, last time or one of these last times. This understanding of double predestination, that the logical conclusion is that, well, if God predestines those to be saved, he must elect those to be damned as well. Uh, and that is a false notion. Uh, it is something that is beyond what even Paul talks about here, which we'll see. But we want to emphasize that whenever you talk about the doctrine of predestination, uh, the, the doctrine of God's, God's, uh, God's election, you always want to talk about it within the realm of grace, right? Primarily grace. Uh, to say, well, if God chooses some to be saved, it logically follows that he chooses those to be damned as well. That's putting reason above faith, right? You're putting logic above the word of God that even says he desires for all men to be saved. Well, if he desires for all men to be saved, then why would he choose some to be damned? You know, it's just, it clashes too much. There's a mystery there. Well, just because he elects certain people for and justifies them for certain things doesn't mean that he's creating people to be damned. That doesn't mean that he's doing that. That like I don't see how logic dictates that though. Well, it, it just I guess it does, I guess it depends on your. Uh, I mean, if he's electing people to be saved and yeah. be prophets and all these other things. It depends on your presuppositions, but then they'll take also the part where he says, you know, shall not he use vessels that are used for um, um, good things, oh. also for bad things too, you know? So it's like he creates certain vessels for common use. And so it's that's like, that's oh, how mine says it. oh, so he uses, so he creates people to be damned. It's like, well, it depends on your presuppositions, right? It, it, it depends on what you're bringing to the table as to what you want to draw the lines on, I guess. So, but if you're, if your faith is, if, if your reason is serving faith instead of faith serving reason, you know, then you've got things right if you say, well, well, what God's word says matters more than what I think is right, right? That's the right way to approach this. And that's what we're going to do here. So, uh, and yeah, it is a mystery because the doctrine of election also has to do with faith. And faith itself is a mystery. Why do some people believe and some others don't? You can find people who are, in similar circumstances, hardships, and all this stuff like that, one hears, you know, they both hear the gospel, one believes and one doesn't. Why? I don't know. Uh, that is that is in the depths of somebody's heart that are that it's indiscernible. And for some reason, they reject it and the other one believed. And it's just like, God doesn't force himself on us. He doesn't force us to believe. And yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit creates faith. I mean, How? Again, it's a mystery. That's not for us to ask how or why, but it is to trust that God does his work that way. I've yeah. had some people talk to me about like fate 
and, and that like oh well if God knows everything that you've that you're going to do and and everything like that so he's already planned it out yeah right I'm like well just because he knows doesn't mean that you're just some uh, I don't know like a robot or something yeah. like that exactly right right I was like he think about like when you space. see like little kids yeah right they're in a situation where you present them with something and you know what the outcome's going to be. <laughs> yeah. what, what good is it then? What but they make up their own mind and, has, right? and do You're it. You're born with it. can't be taken from you. What's it worth? That's the other thing too, is that is that if there's such a thing as double predestination, God chooses those whom he will he save and damn. Well, who cares? I mean, yeah. I, so that means... Why do you need Jesus? Why do you need Jesus? <laughs> well, not only that, why do I have to live a righteous life now? Yeah. If I'm the elect, who cares what I do? I'm going to heaven no matter what I do, right? right? Whereas somebody could live a life of faith and good works and bearing good fruit and keeping with repentance, and then they get to the end of the line and God says, Oh, shucks, man. <laughs> You're not part of the elect, even though you thought you were. How cruel is that? You don't have your wedding garment on. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, it turns God into this tyrant who just decides on a whim who's saved and who's not. And faith, no, faith has no role in it. Um, it's all on the whim of God. So it's it's... It stems from, and this is like the Calvinist, the Reformed understanding, which they're they're actually softening on now. They don't like to talk about this. It's part of their heritage, but this is what they do. Um, it's one of those things where it's just like they're softening on it because if you follow it to their logical conclusion, God is a tyrant. Um, but it stems from this faithful adherence to God, like St. Paul says in chapter 3, being the justifier. Being the one who is the one who justifies. They are monergists in that way, saying that it is only God who saves, but they take it so far to say if he's the one who saves, he's also the one who condemns, and this is the little circle they go in. Whereas we say, well, Scripture says he saves, and then we're to blame if we're condemned. Right? We're the ones who reject him if that's the case, right? And they take something like the doc, like like predestination, they take something like that and they make it on the front end to say, this is how you know who's saved and who's not. Whereas we would put it on the back end and say, you've been baptized, you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you believe it in your heart, and when you have those doubts, remember, God chose you from the beginning of the world to be saved. It's for comfort. It's not to put on the front end to say, you know, well, God chooses who's saved and who's not. It's to say, you have been received by grace through faith. That's because God chose you. We're not going to use that against somebody who doesn't believe. Right? We're not going to use that. You use your free will to reject God. Right. The you free will can only do that. Yeah. Can only reject. Right? And so that's the thing. So yeah. All these things need to be taken into account, right? Um, so let's move on to the next question that St. Paul asks in uh, chapter 9, verse 19. 
Why does God still blame us for who resists his will? What kind of question is that? What's the answer? All resist his will. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. He doesn't, again, force himself on us. He doesn't force us to be faithful. He moves us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean exactly? I don't really know. That is the mystery of faith. Again, why do some believe and others don't when they hear the gospel? And it, it's, it's this mystery that we are not given privy to, right? We are, we are not given the insight that God has in these matters. And so that's why uh, I can only speak one, with 100%. Now I'm saying this just, just, just for the sake of driving this point home. With 100% certainty, I can only speak for myself as being saved. I can probably get to about 95 to 98% with everybody else, depending. Depending on what it is, right? Depending on how well I know you. Depending on how much you come to church, right? Depending on the conversations you have and the works that you do. I can probably say within about 95%, and that's, that's pretty high. But it's not 100%, right? The rest is left to God to know exactly who is and who is not his chosen people, right? Those who are saved by grace through faith. Right? Well, evil lurks in the hearts of man. Only the shadow knows. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I know that's not from Scripture. Um, but it is a nice paraphrase of Jeremiah, right? Uh, that that uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can discern it, right? Who knows? That was no radio program. No, I know the shadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know about that. It was turned into a movie with Alec Baldwin. Anyways, really? um, yeah, like back in the 90s. The shadow. Whoa. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Anyways. Yeah. Um, the Did shadow of things with his mind and stuff. Yeah. So anyways, um, what I, I, I just drive all this home to really say, you know, we have our will by itself, unchanged by God, is deceitful. It's wicked. It can only resist, right? God needs to change our will by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe. Because without God, the world stands condemned, right? Who resists his will? Everybody. Everybody does. Everybody does. We even do it, and we're believers. I mean, really. We're simultaneously justified, yet sinners at the same time, right? It's the paradox we live in. So, apart from Christ, we stand condemned. Yeah? Um, so, what about that next part? Who are you to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same, out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? That's chapter, that's chapter 9, verses 20-21. I mean, what's the answer to this question? Well, God does have that right to do that. He absolutely does. Yeah, that is his right to do so. Um, does he, though? I, okay, first of all, let me ask this question. Um, 
Is it a sin to ask God something along the lines of, why did you make me like this? Is it a sin to ask God, why am I being hounded for what's wrong with me? Or why am I suffering in whatever way it is? Is it a sin to ask God, why am I suffering? Nope. I think a lot of people say, why me? Yeah, it's not a sin. It's not a sin to say, why? Why am I suffering for all these things that are going wrong? It's not a sin. I mean, turn to uh, turn to what it says. Psalm Psalm forty. Sorry, Psalm eighty, verses four through six, uh, and you'll find out that I mean, the proverbs are laden with lamentations, right? I mean, they even have the Psalms of Lament, right? Um, I mean, there's a book called Lamentations, for goodness' sakes, written by the prophet Jeremiah. But for the sake of this, we'll look at. Um, uh, Psalm 80, verses 4 through 6, which only just touched on this really great psalm, um, where the psalmist says, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great, in great, great measure. You have made us a strife to our to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves, right? I mean, the psalmist himself, even in Psalm 22, Jesus prays this from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? It's not a sin to ask, why is this happening? Right? Both believers and unbelievers question the justice of God on some level, right? Um... But the difference is, is that believers ask in faith, saying, why is this happening to me? And we have faith that seeks the understanding that, that God will provide something good, right? And if you go further on in Psalm 80, you say, um, they're crying out for help. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch that you made strong for yourself, right? Fulfill your promises, God. We're going to hold fast to that. And in the meantime, we're going to say, how much longer are we going to have to suffer, right? How much longer are we going to have to, you know, cry out for help? Well, sad, sad news is probably for the rest of your life, right? Uh, probably for the rest of your life. You're going to be crying out for help all the time, uh, especially help against the sinful flesh. So believers and unbelievers alike question, question the justice of God. Um, as, the, as the creator, right, God certainly has the right to do with us as he wills. You're right, Sean, it, Paul is using rhetorical questions here. It's like, does, does he not have the right to do these things? Yeah, he has every right to, to do these things. But he does not desire to condemn us. And what's the reason for that? Why doesn't he desire to condemn us? Because he loves us. Because he loves us? What did he do to show his love? That's right. For God so loved the world, and not just like he loved us so much, but for God loved us just so that he sent his only begotten son, right? 
Um, if he didn't want us to be saved, he wouldn't have done that. I heard it put one time, uh, if God were to force you to love him, mm -hmm. that would be worse than hell. Interesting. That would be worse than hell. I guess it depends on who you ask. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. I mean, yeah, probably if he forced you. What's that? Probably not the ones in hell. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, he doesn't force himself upon us. Um, yeah, that's that's never part of it. So that's an interesting thought, though. I think that's kind of hyperbolic to make a point, though. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so what if God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, the unbelievers, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, that is, believers? What's the answer to that one? I mean, what if God did that? What are you, what are you gonna do about it? Yeah, <laughs> what are you gonna do about it? Yeah. Uh, so what? Yeah. Again, we're getting into the realm of yeah. If God did that, uh, then he's no better than a tyrant. Yeah. He's no better than forcing himself in that way. Yeah. Like uh, scripture says that God prepared Pharaoh or to hate him, and and Herod. We received the word from Moses repeatedly, but didn't respond to God. Yeah. He had a chance. Yeah. But he rejected all yeah. the way. Oh, yeah. And I, he I, gave him over to hardening. That's exactly right. That's exactly what Romans says. And God yeah. did it to show his love for his people. Yeah. And he that's... used this tyrant, Pharaoh, to show his, his will yeah. for the people. I'm yeah. greater than this tyrant. Yeah. So, yeah. he does prove use some of them. And, he does. And that's when we read, he used the same clay to make a good vessel and a, a useful, a beautiful one and a very useful one. But you know, Pharaoh also had a chance to... God is in charge of it all. And he chose to give a hard, hard... To Pharaoh to accomplish his overall purpose. Yeah, but it's it's one of those things that Romans, like you said, Pharaoh heard the word of God, uh, but he was so far gone in his unbelief or his belief of false gods and worshiping demons mm -hmm. that God, as as Saint Paul says in Romans, it was. I mean, he 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 doesn't he doesn't say. See, for example, the Pharaoh. He you know you can. Uh, um, make the the connection there that when he says in Romans 1, um, let me see, uh, yeah, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, right? Um, they be Because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, right? Um, that he gives us over to you know, those, those who are far gone in their sinful desires. He gives them over to it. He says, this is what you want. Here you go. This is what you get. And that's what he did with Pharaoh. And he did use Pharaoh. That's right. Um, 
I think I think I, I got into a discussion with 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 one guy because I because I said that I was like God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he goes no he didn't I was like over let's go back to Exodus you know let's find out yeah he did he hardened his heart um, and it's one of those things that uh, you know God God knew this would happen this is all part of his divine plan of course. Um, but to say that God did not desire for even Pharaoh to be saved is going too far. And that's what some people will say, right? Because Joseph, when he was in Pharaoh's court, mm -hmm. they looked upon the, uh, I guess, Joseph and his family, the Hebrews, this, yeah. the Hebrews yeah. with favor and, and all yeah. of that. Cause, but then that was lost. So it's not like the Egyptians didn't have their own history. <coughs> to look right. back on either. Right, yeah. I mean, so there's no excuse there, and it's not within the realm of God to say, oh, oh I knew all the time these were the ones that I was going to choose to be damned. You know, that's that's too far. And that's the point. It's too far. Uh, so God could prepare people for destruction, but throughout Scripture, he shows that this is not his desire, right? Mm -hmm. um, he created all people for life, he does not predestine anyone to destruction, but he does condemn those who refuse to repent. I mean, Pharaoh is used as an example in baptism that in the Red Sea, God drowns hard-hearted Pharaoh, right? <laughs> we use that example because, not because, you know, God had that in mind. It's like, oh, I'm, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Pharaoh's going to be the one that we always have as this guy who's going to be a bad guy, and I'm going to make it that so. It's like, no, Pharaoh... Rejected and rejected and rejected continually, and he brought about that on his own head. God did not necessarily desire that for him, but he still used his hardness of heart to show how great his glory would be. And right, as a human being, we try to explain God's way, mm -hmm. and He's given it to us, but we want to figure it all out and. Explain we know the, the thoughts of God and the will of God. my way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what is, what is, uh, uh, I mean, St. Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul doesn't even go, go, go so far. He stops. He says, uh, I don't get it. God is God and I'm this, not. This is how it works. I'll leave the rest to God, right? So yeah. So, um, any any thoughts or questions about this so far? It's kind of a lot to digest when you talk about a mystery. I always feel a little funny talking about the doctrine of election because, I mean, you can't fully explain it as much as you would like to. There's the temptation to go too far in saying God does certain things and does, you know, whatever. And so it's hard. It's really hard to stop and speak where scripture speaks and remain silent where it's silent, right? It's hard to do that. So I always get a little, you know, if there's any way I can help explain these things as to why we don't go further in explaining these things, I can, I can try to do that. But anybody have any, We'll take a pause there for a second before we keep going. Who knows you better than God? Yeah. So it's elect. You're elected, but he knows you're electable. 
Yeah. And uh, he knows who isn't electable. <laughs> and it's, yeah. you know, whatever your makeup is and how you're, you feel about it, and, and whether you were baptized when you were five weeks old or whatever, you know. Yeah. He planted, I, that seed was planted in me. Uh-huh. I, I didn't make any choices. Like I told you before, I, I didn't go to church for 10 years. Yeah. And suddenly, I had to go. Yeah. I haven't missed hardly since, except when my wife got sick. I missed, but... And, and, and the... And the <laughs> the only thing that we can attribute that to is the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I mean, what else? I mean, I didn't have any right. exposure at all to the scriptures or anything for 10 years. I was a, a sailor, and, you know, do what sailors do. I <laughs> won't that. go there. And, yeah. And all that stuff. Yeah. But I got a family, and, I, and my wife wasn't a I married a girl, wasn't a Christian. But she followed me, and we one Sunday we went to church. We took the kids, they were little. And we haven't missed since, yeah. unless we were sick or, right. or something like that. But or, you know, like a pandemic hits or whatever. So, yeah. I feel like if I'm at home on Sunday, I don't feel right, even if even it's not a season. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. That's all I can say. I want to be here with other believers and, and feel their connection, the connection we have all have. And believe you need that reinforcement, you know. Sure. Yeah. It reminds me of the parable of the wedding feast. Even though you're elected, you need that reinforcement. How does it remind you of the parable well, of I the wedding he, feast? Well, I think Jesus makes reference to that, like not all who were, those who were invited were not worthy. So go out to the streets and find who, right. whoever you can. The highways find. and the hedges. Yeah, yeah, good and bad. Right. Because not all of us, I forget what he says at the end of that parable, not all who were None of those who were invited will taste of my banquet, right? Yeah, something like that. Because they found other things to do. Uh-huh. So, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm busy. I, I bought a field, but I got to go check it out. Oh, no, I bought, I bought like, five yoke box, and I got to go, I got to go check them out. I got married, I can't come. What? Yeah, some excuses, you know. So go out. Those guys aren't worthy. Go ask everybody else, right? I mean, uh, it was, it, and of course, those who accepted the invitation, right, are the ones who come or who are allowed in. And then there's the whole thing with the wedding garment, which is very interesting, but we won't go there. We're not talking about that parable right now. Um, but it is, it, again, it has to do with, um, it has to do with who better knows you, who knows you better than God, and yet, even then, he doesn't force himself on you. You reject him, he gives you exactly what you want. I mean, it's really interesting because when you hear about those who are locked out of the feast, in the different parables about the feasts, those who are locked out of the feast are, you know, like, like the parable of the, the wise and the foolish virgins with their lamps, you know? And they're locked out, and they say, and they bang on the door and say, Lord, open to us. And he looks and he says, I don't know who you are. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Their light has gone out. God cannot see their face anymore. He doesn't even know their voice. He says, I, I don't even know who you are. Stay out. And the weeping and the gnashing of teeth is not because they're sorry. That may be part of it. The gnashing of teeth is anger because they feel like they've been slighted. 
Isn't that interesting? That God's been unjust. Exactly. Forever and ever, fill, um, forever and ever, hell will be filled with people who feel like they've been slighted, who think they know better than God. It's like uh, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man keeps saying, you know, uh, send Lazarus back to my, to my house for my brothers so they can know. And, 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 but Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he goes, no, Father Abraham, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, and then Abraham says, I tell you, if they do not receive Moses and the prophets, then not even someone who comes back from the dead will be able to persuade them, basically. Who is Jesus himself, right? Very interesting. It's the word that does the work. The spirit works through the word. And, this, and the promise has been there since the beginning, right? Um, and yet there are those who still won't believe. Funny enough. Yeah. So um, let's move on, though, so we can keep on trucking. Uh, who wants to read that next long part? <laughs> uh, the, on page 54 there, uh, beginning with that big quotation. I'll give it a whirl. Give it a whirl. Shot my eye today. Oh, okay. No pressure. If ever any doubt as to our salvation wants to rise in our hearts, then we should remember and cling to the knowledge that God from eternity has taken the matter of our salvation and all that pertains to it into his merciful and powerful hand. In the midst of all crosses and trials, when it would seem that God has abandoned us entirely, we should rest our faith upon his word, which tells us that all the tribulations of this present time are not incident along the way to heaven and can in no way compare with the glory that shall be revealed to us on the day of our final redemption. If we thus adhere strictly to the argumentation of scriptures and apply the comfort of scriptures to our hearts, then our thoughts will not revert to others. Then we shall not yield to the temptation of speculating about this doctrine in its so-called reasonable conclusions, and will thus be spared the danger into which such speculation leads. If we thus hold fast the truth that the election of grace is not an absolute election, that it was not an arbitrary act of God's sovereign pleasure, but flows from the eternal counsel of love, that it is based alone upon his grace and mercy, and that its object is to keep us safe in his word and faith unto our end, that all thoughts of doubt, or, of doubt will be removed from our hearts, and our faith will be mostly firmly established. Right. And that's uh, from the commentary on Romans by K.G. Steckhart. Um, so basically what he's saying is kind of what I talked about before. You, you don't put the cart before the horse when it comes to the doctrine yeah, the doctrine of election. Uh, the doctrine of election is always and should always be spoken of as the icing on the cake, right? Uh, the doctrine of election should always be the, the source of extra comfort for those who already believe, okay? So that is that if somebody is saying, 
you know, yeah, I'm baptized. I go to church. Uh, I, you know, I even tithe. I help out. I volunteer. I do. I, I, I try and do God's will according to his grace and mercy. Uh, but sometimes I wonder when I read that passage about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, I wonder, have I ever done that? If you're in doubt, like if, if you're worried that you've ever blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, you have not blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. You have not done it. If you weren't concerned, like if you didn't give a, you know, one, one wit about, about it, it's like, I don't care if I did or not. And you might be in some trouble, right? But if you're actually concerned about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, that's faith speaking and saying, I... I'm terrified, and I don't want to have done this. It's like, well, then that's a sign that you haven't. And that's because God chose you from the foundation of the world. You know, it's like, it's just at the added comfort on top of things, right? It's the icing on the cake. I mean, the cake is good by itself. You know that you're saved by grace through faith, but you get that little cherry on top that says, and just in case you were ever wondering, God did this because he chose you from the foundation of the world, right? It's not a it's not a tool for us to use against others who may or may not believe or whatever, right? It's a it's it's all about his grace. Okay? Any questions on that? Okay. So, uh, faith obtains righteousness. Earlier in Romans, Paul emphasizes that the call of God and the adoption as sons have always been based on God's righteousness received. By faith, he returns to this theme again to illustrate God's frustration with the Jewish people and their misunderstanding of the law. He says in uh, chapter 9, verse 30, uh, first part, verse 30a, What then shall we say about the Gentiles in Israel? What's the answer to that question? basically the same people um according according to what their faith right i mean they're basically the same people according to the promise right there's no distinction there right yeah because it said not all who belong to or were israel belong to israel right yeah and and it, it says in, in in the in the rest of that in the rest of that verse, so he says, what shall we say then? And, and he fills in the blank there. It's like, what shall we say then about the Gentiles and Israel? And he says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Right? The Gentiles are saved by faith. The Israel, according to the flesh, still is trying to live according to the law, as if that's what's going to save them, right? So the Gentiles received righteousness by faith, but the Israelites could not attain righteousness through the law. He's just drawing that, he's driving that distinction home there about grace versus the law in terms of what actually saves you, okay? Questions on that? Was that what, is that kind of what Paul was talking about when he was talking about circumcision? Uh, it was the uh, 
circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised. Yeah, and and the circumcision of the heart and things like through that. Through faith or something. Yeah, like yeah. Um, that circumcision by itself as a work of the law counts for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it counts for nothing for salvation. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's kind of what he was talking about. Okay. Well, then the Jews make, take the Ten Commandments and make 3,000 laws out of it? Yeah. Well, not, yeah. Goodness <laughs> yeah. gracious. Yeah, well, they take they take more than the Ten Commandments, too. That's, that's, that's well, they, made, they made up the rest, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Talmud is, I, it's kind of funny. I, I, I know a pastor who tried to get his hands on the Talmud. You know who the Talmud is, right? So the Talmud is like rabbinical teachings, so teachings of certain rabbis. And there's different traditions. There's like the Babylonian Talmud. It's just, and uh, it's an exploration and uh, an explanation of the law. Okay? okay, it's an expounding. It's basically saying, you know, so how are we to keep the Sabbath on a certain day if there's this condition, this condition, this condition, and they hash it out amongst themselves and then put it in the Talmud once they've hashed it out. And so this one pastor I know was just like, I tried to get my hands on a Talmud. And they said, which volume? Because there's hundreds of volumes of the Talmud. And that's why you have these Jewish schools that just spend their entire lives trying to learn the Talmud. And it's very funny because it's actually extremely contradictory of its own self. You know, they're, they're, they're like Jesus said, and to the Pharisees, they are teachings as doctrines of man, the commandments of God, right? So it's, I, and I'm not an expert on the Talmud, but I, I, I've just heard of many instances where there's more contradictions than there are, you know, agreements Pure within the Talmud. It just takes God and takes, takes God's word and, I mean, makes it all according to the will of man, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt some good stuff in there, I bet. I mean, some, some stuff is probably not so bad, but there's enough in there that probably bring the whole thing into question. So, yeah. Um, so, next question, chapter 9, verse 32. Why did Israel not attain righteousness? Why did they not attain righteousness? What did they do? Didn't you just say that because they can't get it through the law? It's right. They mm-hmm. sought to justify themselves by works of the law and not through faith. So then, and we're just going through these questions real quick because this, these are pretty cut and dry. What does Scripture say about God's promise of righteousness through faith? Uh, that's chapter 10, verse 8a. Everyone who believes in Jesus and what he did for you. And everybody will not be put to shame. Yeah, so uh, what's that? Chapter 10, verse 8 and 11. Um, Yeah, what about... So God's word of faith is near, right? Um, What did you say again, Sean? That uh, um, Everyone who believes in Jesus and what he did for you and everybody will not be put to shame. Yes, that's right. Yeah, because yeah, that's true. Because of what? How do they how do they know? How do they know about Jesus? We'll talk about this. Yeah, the scriptures, the word of God, right? So they heard the word of faith is near, the word proclaimed by the prophets, the apostles, 
you know, as we said before, Moses and the prophets, right, who proclaim Christ to come, and now the apostles who proclaim that Christ has come, and even your pastor, and all pastors really, that should be a part of the apostolic tradition that continues to proclaim that Christ has come. They need to join the Baptist. Yeah, the also. last great prophet, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So they continue to preach the word of faith, and the word of faith says, trust in the Lord for your righteousness, right? Trust in the Lord for your justification. And that goes all the way back to Genesis and Abraham. Absolutely. Well, even before that, I mean, uh, the, the Proto-Evangelion, the, uh, the first gospel in the garden, after, you know, with the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, right? It goes all the way back to that. Right? God did not leave his people without a promise. Yeah? Yeah. That's good stuff. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, how can they, that is the nations, call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? They can't. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Because faith comes by what? Hearing the word Hearing. of God preached to you. That's right. Hearing the word and the word of Christ, right? The word of God. Um, although the na- because, because, because the nations knew God as creator. I mean, they, Paul says as much in chapter 1, verse uh, 19 through 20, right? Where he says, um, because they... Uh, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his, inv- his invisible attributes are cle- clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They know God is creator, but they just replaced the creator with the creature. They started to make graven images of, you know, lizards and men and cows and whatever and worship those things, you know. Um, instead of the creator, but they still see, I mean, atheists are in denial about there being a God that creates things, right? It's just, it's just kind of funny. Uh, it's just so far gone. It's just uh, kind of laughable. It's really sad, though. Atheists who just don't even believe there's a creator God because they're just denying what is manifest, right? But the nations, as it were, at this time, and even now, paganism is coming back. You know, paganism is, is on a rise again. And these people are worshiping the creation rather than the creator because they see something great in creation as if it's divine. So they acknowledge that there is a creator of some things, right, of, of this world, but they don't know God as Savior. So they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear that he is... Uh, that he is uh, the God that is over all, you know, the eternally blessed God, that through him all things are made, right? So they need to hear these things. So, so are you saying yeah. uh, you can't come to faith by reading the Bible? Well, see, that's the thing, is that um, you can, and when he says hearing, we need to understand that as that was the primary medium through which people heard God's word. Back then, because they couldn't read anyway. Well, they probably could, but they just didn't have books readily available. On some level, everybody had to kind of read a little bit of something. 
I mean, um, the apostles were not like extremely learned men, but they had to know enough to be able to sign like a contract or something like that, especially Matthew, who's a tax collector, you know, or something along those lines. They had to be able to read certain signage. So they read some things, but books weren't readily available. I mean, the manuscripts of the Bible are highly coveted. We, we, we don't necessarily have them in the original autographs, but they were kept because the writing was so precious, you know. Um, what I mean to say is this. There's this question of, like, what it means to hear, and that is the understanding that you receive, you receive the information of the Scriptures. Either, you know, it was primarily through hearing, and we would say that, Although you can believe in God, you can come to faith because you read the Bible, um, you might wind up like the Ethiopian eunuch who needs a little explanation. Needs some explanation. So that's why he talks to the deacon Philip and says, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me, right? So you still need that, that, that component of somebody coming alongside you to say, yeah, you read that. And what that means is this. Right. Um, I think it's actually kind of it, it's not something that I wouldn't wholly discourage, but I think it, you're playing a, a dicey game when when you have someone who just simply says, I'm going to read the Bible from front to back and I don't want to talk to anybody about it. I don't want to be influenced by anybody in any way whatsoever about what's going on in the Bible. Because then you're kind of... It's going to get pretty weird pretty quick. It's going to get weird pretty quick. You're going to get confused really quickly and easily. And also you might even have certain ideas that you're going into the Bible with that are going to lead you astray possibly. You're not even giving yourself proper context. Yeah, so it's a little dangerous. It's not that it's impossible. It's possible. But it's just, it's better off hearing rather than, like hearing in combination with reading. Um, then you get into the whole thing of what do you do with deaf people, which we won't even go into right now because even the deaf can understand because it's like, what do you do with a deaf congregation? Just trust God and let yeah. God be God. <laughs> well, and well, yeah, I know. And, and they're signing these words and they're making the motions about what's taking place and that is still a communication, right? It is still a receiving of what is being communicated. It's just a different medium, right? Yeah, it's not literal. Right. It, there's, there's some freedom to be had in understanding exactly what he means by hearing the word of God. Yeah. Um, because, of course, God wants deaf people to be saved, right? Uh, it's not just for those who hear. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. No, it's a good question, though. Um, but the question, the next huh? Yeah. Next question, though, how can they, that is the evangelists, right, preach unless they are sent? What is the answer to that question? How can they preach unless they're sent? Go anyway. <laughs> Go anyway. <laughs> All right. So this is this is where I defend my job job description here. Uh, <laughs> um, did I just wake up one day and decide that I was going to be a pastor, and then all of a sudden I was? What did I have to do? What is what? What do pastors, at least in the Missouri Synod, have to do to become a pastor? Go to seminary. Yeah. We have certainly, there is something to be said for the inward call. You feel, you feel like you are being led by God to pursue at least 
the possibility of you being a pastor. So you go through the channels and you say, I'd like to talk to my pastor about being a pastor. And the pastor talks to the district and so on and so forth. It's all kind of a man-made structure, but it's done, I think, in wisdom to make sure that those who are called really are called to be pastors so that they go through seminary, they go through examinations, they go through um, these certain tests to make sure that they're actually doing it for the right reasons. They actually have a heart for doing these things, you know, and not everybody who gets through the seminary sometimes should be a pastor. I'll be honest with you. There are guys who slip through the cracks, but it doesn't mean that they can't still do God's work as a pastor and they can't lead people to Christ and faith and things like that. But what I mean to say is that when Paul says this, how can they preach unless they are sent? It's the basic understanding that no one should make himself a preacher, right? I was just going to say, you can do that online now. I yeah, I know. I know. Ordained of being a pastor and starting my own church. And yeah, I, yeah, I got my certificate of organ. I got my certificate of ordination in five minutes on a website. Yeah. So now I can marry people on a boat or something. That just like, yeah, I can't, I can't stand that. It's so, uh, again, kind of, kind of annoying because it takes so lightly the office that is a weighty one, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm really glad I, we went back and watched my ordination here. I'm glad that my, my vicarage supervisor, like, streamed it on the little camera that he had or whatever. So, and it was, it was on um, St. Paul and Valley City, Ohio's Facebook page. You can go watch it. I think it's still on ours too. It's linked to it anyways. I wanted to see, did they, because I couldn't remember. Did they lay their hands on me? And they did. Like we had all these pastors just kind of like placing their hands on my head, on my shoulders. And that was to feel the weight of the office, you know? Um, and like, I, they weren't, they weren't pushing, I don't think. They weren't pushing on me, but just the weight of everything was just like weighing me down. Because you should know that to be a pastor is not a light thing, right? God calls pastors. And, easy money? No, it's not easy money. <laughs> uh, no, God, God calls pastors and he sends them uh, forth through the church, right? The church calls pastors um, in the most basic sense. The office of the keys is given to the church, but they call a certain man to act out that office, right? Y'all called me to act out the office of the keys and the office of preaching, teaching, and um, delivering the sacraments, right? Um, and that is not something that I got because, oh, I'm so special, but it's something that God has called me to do, and he does the work through me. I'm just an instrument, Right. Um, and as his instrument, I, every single Sunday, if y'all want to know what I pray, if you see me praying up there at the altar before I go preach, I pray some variation of Lord, give me, give, give me your words to speak that I may preach your word with power and do not forsake me for if ever I were to be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. Amen. <laughs> and then I go into the pulpit and I preach. Right. Um, I grew up with a pastor. Every sermon started with, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord. My rock and my redeemer, right? It's from the Psalms. Beautiful. Yeah. 
Psalm one twenty something. I can't fucking remember. On I think it's right. I yeah. used to work with a guy who one day decided, oh, I've been called by the Spirit to be a preacher. Frank may know him, Thomas Jeffers, you know, remember? Yeah, him? Yeah. But anyway, he had a church next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I, yeah, that's that's Strength that's an engineer into the preaching world. Yes, I know, there. and that's and that's the thing is that there are denominations who will do that. Um, they'll just put someone up in the pulpit to preach, you know, and it's just like, well, we have, we have limitations on that. And I think, and I think rightly so, um, not all are given that office. So, um, yeah, we, we as pastors can't do anything apart from the authorization that has been given by God through the church. You know, I can't, I, 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 before, like, could you imagine if y'all had not called me and I just walked in off the street and I just said, by the way, everybody, I'm your new pastor. And you just go, who are you? Right? No, no, trust me, y'all. I was called by God and I'm your pastor now. And you all just go, we don't know you from Adam, brother. You know, how do we know? Right? And that, that actually happened in America when the Lutherans first got here. There was, um, um, oh, Zinzendorf. Um, I forget his first name. He was a, a, a Moravian, like a Bohemian. Uh, he was a Moravian, and he came across from Germany and, and came over to America and, and showed up at a Lutheran church that didn't have a pastor and just said, you know, I, I, I'd like to preach. And they, he had a good enough understanding of the Bible that he, they made him pastor. But then all of a sudden... The pastor who was actually called and sent from Germany to preach to them showed up one day. And that was uh, Henry Melchior Muhlenberg, who started the Philadelphia, um, or the Pennsylvania Ministerium. And um, it was funny because he, he showed up one day and he just goes, who are you? And they, and they said, who are you? And he said, I'm your pastor. And they had this debate between the two of them, between Zinzendorf and Muhlenberg and Muhlenberg said, you don't have a call. I do. I'm called to be the pastor. And so the church said, all right, bye. Bye, dude. You know, <laughs> come on in because you are our pastor. You have the call, right? That's how you know. Um, that's how you can say if somebody comes in off the street and just says, I have been moved by God to be your pastor. Everybody's first response would be, we didn't call you, brother. Now have a seat in the pew and listen to our pastor. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, the church has every right to say these things to people who who think maybe a little bit too highly of themselves. And then they probably have good reasons. They want to serve. They want to do right. They want to be faithful. But there are some guys who I've heard be very critical of the system that we have that, yeah, it's man made. But I think it's done wisely to make sure that men are prepared for the weighty task of the pastoral office. Also yeah. in Romans, didn't it make reference to like uh, pastors and those who are going to preach the word or kind of held to a higher scrutiny? Yeah, it's later on, I think, in the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus, okay. right? That, um, that no one should, um, that, that the office of the overseer is, is one that should not be rushed into. Um, 
they will be held to a higher standard for for sure. I mean, and also it says that in Hebrews too, um, that those those who keep watch over your souls will be held to a higher standard. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got to be careful with what I teach y'all. Um, if I am not teaching true doctrine, then I have I have God to answer for in the last day, or I have God to answer to on on the last day, and He'll say, "Why did you Why did you tell them that this was okay when you know it's not?" Kind of thing. Yeah. So, just comment a little bit. Okay. Um, during my husband's ministry there. He was supervisor for vicars mm -hmm. for five different men. Yeah. Two of them did not go into the ministry. One of them felt that he had uh, been kind of been coaxed into it. The family wanted him to go to the seminary and we, and he, while he was there, he said, I just don't feel led. I don't think that this is God's will. Yeah. And there was another one who said he was, but he was involved in falsehood. He had some moral failings. It was moral and serious problems. And he went through the whole program, the seminary. He passed his tests and, and the interview and everything. And then when and received a call, but it was not, he had not graduated yet. And then when they, uh, a young woman came and testified, and uh, they had to withdraw uh -huh. his call, yeah. withdraw the graduation. Yeah. He couldn't, couldn't be because he had falsified. Uh, when he came to us, he was as a vicar, he said he had been divorced and the congregation had to talk about it and accept it. And then later when this woman came forward and spoke, there were two divorces before he got started. Oof, oof. And yeah, that's something you don't. So, so it, it, it can <coughs> happen that, but our system, could, he almost slipped yeah, through there sure. until someone uh, right yeah the system's not perfect no but, but, it it, to but it there are it safeguards yes there are safeguards and yeah rather than just showing up in the pulpit someday and that's yeah. it right I mean pastors pastors go through just as much if not more education and preparation than doctors and lawyers do <laughs> That's so why you didn't when, want me to fill in for you, right? Yeah, sorry about that, right? <laughs> my daughter, You're not called! My daughter was What's born your... in the hospital room with me was a pastor's wife. Mm -hmm. He was Baptist. He had decided that he should mm -hmm. preach. So he was a pastor, and here my husband, a pastor, comes in to see me. <laughs> Rather interesting, some conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun. So yeah. we saw that... Early on in ministry, we saw that, and then we saw vicarage that failed. So it, yeah, it happens. Can, it, there are safeguards, and it right. right. So yeah, so 
be rest assured, I have been prepared and y'all gave me the call and yeah, I'm here, so it's good. Um, I have been sent and things are good, right? Um, yeah, and I, and I do it all for the good of the church and, and uh, we work together in these things. So next question is though, did they, the Israelites, not hear God's word? Right? So if preachers go and preach and they preach the word of God, did the Israelites not hear God's word? No, they did. Yeah, they did. What was wrong, though? They chose to not want to understand. Yeah, they didn't believe it. Yeah, they, they didn't believe it. The next question is, did Israel not understand God's word? I think St. Paul, Paul doesn't really answer this directly. I think he kind of does, though. Because if they really understood it, they would have believed it. Right? You, I, I mean, they you would hope so. What's that? I thought they didn't understand it. Yeah, I mean, maybe they didn't. Again, it's it's within the realm of the heart. We don't really know exactly why. But uh, the Israelites certainly had the word, but they rejected it. Uh, if, if they understood it, well, they may have had another reason for not believing it. They thought they had enough understanding and they didn't need maybe. more understanding. <laughs> maybe. Who knows? It's kind of crazy. I don't know. Uh, again, within the, within the realms of the heart, no one can really say for sure. Um, but to keep pushing on here, chosen by grace, Paul emphasizes that Jews are loved by God and some are among those chosen by grace, even though many are rejecting Jesus. Uh, even as many Gentiles were in rebellion before being called by the gospel, so also many Jews in rebellion will be mercifully called by the same power of Jesus Christ. So the next question from chapter 11, verse 1, did God reject his people? His people, um, did God reject his people, Israel? Did he reject the entire nation of Israel? No, no he did not. Many descendants of Israel trusted in Christ. I mean, the church in Paul's day was largely made up of Jews, right? Those were the first believers. They even had a whole ordeal of saying, like, well, what do we do with the Gentiles now? Because all we have are Jews, basically, the ethnic Jews in the church. And how do we deal with the whole Gentile contingent? Yeah. So it's mostly Jews that were converted to Christianity. And even today, many Jews convert to Christianity each year, right? I mean, it's not, it's not unheard of at all. Um, so any questions on that? Do you want to say anything about that one? Okay. Next question, um, chapter 11, verse 2 and uh, verse 4a. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? What was God's answer to him? What did God say to Elijah? He had kept 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to Baal, chosen, I put chosen by grace. Yeah, okay. He was not alone. Yeah, he wasn't alone. God preserves a remnant of believers to carry on the proclamation of his grace in Christ, right? Um, how, I mean, how often do we maybe think, are we the only ones left? No, there are others out there who believe. God has, has uh, preserved a remnant of the faithful, right? So even though the church numbers are shrinking and some people are kind of wondering what to do about it, you just go, well, God will preserve a remnant. All we have to do is be faithful. 
Right? Let's not tamper with things that we shouldn't tamper maybe with. Maybe the devil's lying to you through the numbers. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there, what does it say? What's, what's the old saying? There's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Right? <laughs> Get it? So, I mean, like, statistics, you can manipulate these things. And, of course, Satan uses those things. Um, and so, uh, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's just like, you got to be careful with the numbers. And... Um, I don't know. I, I, I still think there's a lot of hope for the church. I mean, God says as much, right? The gates of hell will never prevail over that, it. That's exactly right. Yeah, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. So, um, what then should we think about the nation of Israel? Verse, 11, uh, verse 7 in chapter 11. What then should we think about the nation of Israel? They were a stepping stone. A stepping stone. Yeah, I mean, on some level, I mean, they were they were the people of the promise, and the promise just transferred from them to the rest of us, right? Yeah. They're still a part of the promise, right? They can still receive the benefits of it. Um, but they, as we said before, the physical descendants of Israel did not attain God's righteousness because... Um, they did not attain God's righteousness according to the law. Um, and the only way that they can attain God's righteousness is um, the free gift of grace that's not only given to them, but to all who believe, right? Um, so did they, the Israelites, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Was, are they lost forever? Don't nod your head. <laughs> no. God, God is fulfilling his purpose for them and continues to call them to repentance, right? Um, uh, we see that in like chapter 15, right? It, it re references 15 verses 8 through 12 where um, uh, Jesus Christ has come as a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might, be, might glorify God for his... For his, for his mercy, right? Um, God is fulfilling his purpose for them and continues to call them to repentance, right? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, my father used to listen to Pastor Hagee uh -huh. a lot. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if it was just his style that he liked. Uh -huh. He likes that real fire and brimstone-y stuff. Sure. Um, but he would talk about... He was a big supporter of the nation of Israel, right. like presently right now. Right. And I got the sense that Pastor Hagee, or I guess given his, his way, would have the temple rebuilt and the nation of Israel be restored to its former glory and... I always had an issue with that. Yeah, you should. It's like, why would you want? Didn't Jesus? Didn't the curtain rip? And like, wasn't the temple destroyed? There's no longer necessary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Hagee is a dispensationalist, as we talked about before. 
He believes that he and, and, and people like that and the disp- dispensationalists can't believe that there will be another dispensation to the Jews, that they will be saved because they are Jews. Um, and so therefore he's a big supporter of the nation of Israel as it is today. He is a big supporter. He's, he's a Zionist, as we would say, that he wants to restore the temple. Zionist. Yeah, he wants, he wants to restore the temple to its former glory. Um, and they think that this is all part of like bringing about the second coming of Christ on some level. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's like until the temple is rebuilt, the end times won't come kind of thing. And I mean, I'm trying to be as fair. And this is just, this is what I know. I, you know, there may be some particulars I miss, I'm missing on this, but from what I know about John Hagee, um, yeah, he's big into supporting, uh, the current nation of Israel. Um, and trying to restore it as it was because he believes that the Jews are God's chosen God people. Chosen people. Yeah. He's th- he believes that he believes and dispensationalists believe that the Jews, just by being Jews by blood, means that they are God's chosen people. Still, regardless of faith. So even as Christians, we don't even hold a special reverence for the Jewish people because they were the people that God entrusted. I mean, there's no, lots of promises with like. So what? Do, so what do you mean by holy special like, reverence for the people for the Jewish people? Um, I guess because of because of that, I guess you kind of answered my question. <laughs> what is what's the answer? <laughs> well, we shouldn't have a special relationship for them. We should have a special relationship now. Israel yeah. is the church. We should have just as much of a relationship with them as we do as the pagans in Africa. Yeah, as anybody else. Really? We're and, Israel now. Huh? We're, we are Israel. That's right. Yeah. The church is Israel. Uh, we, I don't, no, I don't, I don't think that we should have any sort of special, really, honestly, any sort of special reverence for Jewish practice or custom as if that's what we come from. Because to be honest with you, the modern or the current practices of, of Jews um, Seder meals, Passover meals as their practice right now, those are kind of uh, practices that came about sometime in the early Middle Ages, actually, in response to so many Jews converting to Christianity. I mean, the reason, part of the reason why you see Jews bringing back like prayer shawls and stuff like that, that's not something that has been around since the time of Jesus, but it's something that was like, reintroduced or re-emphasized in Judaism after the temple was destroyed um, because then they needed they needed something to adhere to and it's funny because if you watch you can I've seen it on like satellite or cable or whatever they have like a special Jewish channel and you watch a, a Jewish temple service or whatever in a synagogue somewhere they chant the Psalms in Hebrew sounds a lot like what we do what they do in church looks a lot like what we do. And that's not because we got it from them. It's because they changed certain things in their practices to make it more appealing and ritualistic and ceremonial so that they would lose less people to Christianity. Okay, just try to comfort them through all that. Yeah, kind of kind of adding some ritual to their religion so that and based uh-huh. based on Old Testament practice and things like that for sure. But I mean, it's, it's just one of these things of like, we have to be careful 
Because I, I say this for those who are enticed by Judaism on some level to think that Seder meals are what's always been when that's not the case. Or to think that the Passover meal as it's celebrated amongst Jews today how, is, is how it's always been. That's not the case, right? Um, we need to be careful about that. We actually have a heritage as Christians that is actually more ancient, right? Because... I mean, we do have a lot of our practices did come from the practice of the synagogues in Jesus' time. But beyond that, I mean, that's, that's really where the comparison ends. And, and uh, I, just, I just think it gets a little bit dicey when you start to um, reverence the Jews today that aren't believers in Christ, right, that are still adhering to the Old Testament as opposed to the New, to reverence them as if they have something to add to what we have. They don't. They really don't. In fact, we have more to give to them than anything because we have Christ and they don't. Right? That's the big, that's the big, big distinction. Anyways. Um, the Jews, they think they're descendants of Abraham, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're, look throughout the Gospel of John. It's the same thing. They'll say, we are descendants of Abraham. We have not been enslaved by anybody. It's just like, Oh, you forget the Exodus, I guess. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, you've been slaves, and you are still slaves to sin because you refuse to believe in who Christ is. So, so you got to check the bloodline. they got to be a good cash cow for Ancestry.com. <laughs> Actually, you know who runs Ancestry.com? The Mormons. Really? The Mormons run Ancestry.com because they're big into genealogies. The biggest, the biggest genealogical... Library in the world, Salt Lake City, Utah. It's expensive but good. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh no, they're very thorough, and we'll get. We can. We can probably look at why <laughs> they're very thorough, and that's because they baptize their dead, and that's a whole other story for another day. Um, they'll yeah, they'll baptize the dead by proxy. Yeah, yeah, it's very strange. We'll talk about that maybe some other time if we get to the Mormons someday. Uh, but that's why they keep a genealogical record as concise as they do. Um, anyways, <laughs> uh, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, therefore, stress the importance of ongoing outreach to Jews with the hope of more coming to faith in Christ and becoming part of the true Israel, right? Uh, we want them to believe in Christ. We are not, we should not be content with them simply being sons of Abraham by the flesh alone. We want them sons of Abraham by faith because that's what's really important, right? Okay, words to remember because we need to close this off. We've been going way too long on this one. It's a long study, but it's good though. It's good. Words to remember. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Romans eleven thirty-two. To prepare for next time, um, Session 15, Living Sacrifices, read Romans 12, verses, verse 1 through Romans 15, verse 30. Okay? Huh? They're getting longer. They're getting longer, <laughs> but we're getting towards the end. So, yeah, we're getting towards the end. Um, with that, though, we have reached the end of this study, and let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. So, taught by our Lord and trusting His promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.